The scripture tonight is from John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. spending a lot of time with John the Baptist in this sort of extended holiday season from Advent to Epiphany. And like anyone that you spend a lot of time with, sometimes he irritates me with his fire and brimstone fanaticism like he's some half-crazed lunatic soapbox preacher haranguing passers-by. And other times I find I like him. My daughter's friends are always saying, well, do you like him like him? I like him quite a bit sometimes. I mean, for an ancient character in a book. He's interesting when he's not boring. He's unconventional. He's disruptive to the status quo, the empire and its empire way. He's a revolutionary. Even now, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree, like Zapata, Che Guevara, Subcomandante Marcos. I like them like them, even if I don't know them know them. Repent for John the Baptist doesn't mean get on your knees and apologize for not being nice after a day of shopping when you're back in your nice warm house or confess your sins while you're sitting in a nice warm pew. It means get ready to change your allegiance. Repent of your constant accommodation to the empire that enslaves you. Quit buying its fruit, it's not fruit, it's lies. Bear fruits that befit revolution. 
The wrath is coming, the end is near. The chaff is going to burn up in an unquenchable fire. Choose your side, man. The wolf of Wall Street is going down. The empire and its minions are going up in flames. And sometimes it seems like, I don't know, like it should. Empires don't change that much. In the Roman Empire of John's day, brutality was considered a necessity. Callousness was seen as a virtue. We may call it interrogation techniques, or we may call it austerity, but the moves are sort of the same. The wolves don't give up their yachts, but go ahead and cut food stamps. Give tax breaks to the corporations and cut the programs that benefit the poor. The machine has to run smoothly, and this is how the empire works. The rich get richer and the poor get richer. I mean, the poor get poorer. Wrath may be appropriate, but distraction is the oil on the gears of the machine. Give the people games. Gather the masses in the Colosseum where they can forget about injustice and watch people bludgeon each other for sport. It's such an old and such an obvious strategy. I can hardly believe it still works, but clearly it does. Watch other people be shamed and berated by a gladiator or a chef or a dance expert or Donald Trump. What is it with reality TV? When the crowds get bored with men killing each other, the game masters would think of something more perverse. Pit a woman against a dwarf. Put blind people in the Colosseum to fight each other. Watch a mad rhinoceros take down a giraffe. The Roman emperor was worshipped as the son of God. That was the official title. Of course we can't hear the Gospels well if we weren't, aren't all the time thinking about the empire, thinking about the pervasive imperial context in which they were written and in which we receive them. John the Baptist, John the B, I sometimes like to call him when I'm feeling more intimate, was courageously harsh. The mouth of a prophet is like a sharp sword, like Richard reminded us in his great sermon a couple weeks ago, and it's so important. Che Guevara said, if you tremble with indignation at every injustice, then you are a comrade of mine. John the Baptist is like that. I think Jesus too. John takes on Herod, the Roman collaborator, and gets thrown into prison and gets his head cut off. But in the gospel for today, John seems so much more gentle-like, almost quiet. He doesn't call for unquenchable fire. He almost seems subtle, though not entirely. I mean, he is still the baptizer after all, which at the time wasn't really a very ordinary thing to be. Taking people and plunging them into a river beneath the current, which isn't sprinkling people in the chancel. It's the symbolism that you die, that you might live. And we've had like 2,000 years to get comfortable with the baptism thing. 
or maybe to drain it of some of its potency, to make it a little more routine. We hear baptizer, and maybe we think of a pastor who eats normal food, not locusts, wears normal clothes, not leather, reads from a liturgy, saying the prescribed words, things eked out after a generation of men usually have hashed it all over time and time, careful words, cautious words, everything pretty calm, except maybe for the baby crying, which makes people laugh because it's cute. But John the baptizer, his scene isn't anything like that. He is a voice crying from the wilderness, from the wild, He is outside the lines of polite society. He is the wilderness man without the freeze-dried pad thai and the REI super gear. He's certainly a man worth noting. Yet his whole being in the Gospel of John is about witnessing to something other than his own interesting self. Something that he says is greater than him. In chapter 3, he states his mantra, he must increase, but I must decrease. I like this too about him. Obviously, he's no egomaniacal male. Right before the passage that Barb read, a delegation of people are sent out to find out about John and report on him like, like reporters, I don't know, like Krista Tippett maybe. There's obviously been a lot of buzz about John, um, and they think he's very important. So they send an entourage out to where he is, and they ask him, tell us, John, who are you? But he doesn't take the opportunity to tell them how wild and beautiful and subversive he is. He says practically nothing about himself. He says, I am not the Christ. Well, they didn't actually ask if he was the Christ. It was an open-ended question instead of a yes-no sort of a thing. But they skew their questions to a sort of terse mode of communication. Well then, are you Elijah? He says no. And then they ask, are you a prophet? And of course he is a prophet. Everyone knows that he's a prophet. It seems like he should say yes in all honesty. He's a prophet. This is how he's portrayed in every gospel, including this one, the prophet of Christ. But he says... No. It's practically like comedy how he acts here. Some Monty Python skit. Or beautiful how little need he has to talk about himself. The reporters get annoyed by him. They need something. So they try to open it up again. Okay, you're not a Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not a prophet. What do you say about yourself, John? And John says this, it's as much as he gives him, them, and it is such a wisp. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I am a faceless voice from the void. Funny? Maybe mysterious? Or BS? People have felt suspicious about this whole pointing thing. John the Baptist couldn't really have been so deferential. They say there must have been a rivalry between Jesus and John. And whoever wrote this gospel is trying to make sure we know that John was a relative nobody compared to Jesus. John's whole he must increase and I must decrease isn't real. It wasn't true. 
It wasn't how John really was. It's just a writer attempting to deal with some rivalry. This whole thing is about some rivalry. But I really don't think so. Non-egomaniacal revolutionaries point away from themselves. Subcomandante Marcos never shows his face. It's about pointing away themselves from themselves to something else. And it's not because they're trying to be humble and pious, but because they believe that the hope for the world really lies in some ever-revolving truth that really isn't all about their selves. I think that John the Baptist points to Jesus because he sees something that he can hardly believe. He beholds the Lamb of God. Again, I don't know, this, this could be funny. At first glance, it might not seem like some wild, revolutionary, far-out-there thing, but just think of the animal here. I'm not kidding. We're used to this language, so it might not seem so startling, but the one who was greater than John, the one whose sandal he was unworthy to untie, his first glimpse of him is not, Behold, the mighty fortress is our God, but behold the lamb. A great one in the Roman Empire would never, ever, ever be okay with a title like the Lamb of God. Behold Caesar, the kitten of God. Never. The image is so counter-imperial. The empire was strong and bold. It may have preached peace, but it instilled fear. This is how the empire works. Sheep, on the other hand, do not instill fear. A lamb is not glorious or fierce or strong or wrathful or powerful. It's so not omnipotent, so not omniscient. It's almost as opposite of all those things as you can get. So anti-empire, so turning things upside down, right out of the gate. Later in the gospel, Jesus will call himself the Good Shepherd, which seems like a pretty fine image for a god. But here in his very first introduction, he's not a shepherd, he is a sheep. It's so strange, it's so vulnerable. The incarnation of God in the world just isn't really what you would expect. You could not possibly come up with an animal image that was less evocative of imperial might, unless, of course, it was a dove. John says, Behold the Lamb, and John says, I knew Jesus was the Son of God because I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven. A lamb, a dove. I am obviously not making these animals up. Birds were pregnant with meaning all over the ancient empire. They were omens and oracles. They were messengers of the divine. The ascension of the emperor Claudius was predicted by a bird, an eagle. An eagle that swooped down and landed on his shoulder, a huge eagle with wings screeching triumphantly. This was seen 
as an omen of divine presence. A man being declared a god with the accompanying descent of a bird was a familiar story in the empire, actually. They were very big on birds and omens and oracles. But not a dove, for God's sake. The eagle was and is, it can hardly be overstated, huge in the symbolic world of the empire. The eagle was a symbol on the Roman standard. The Roman legions were led into battle by an eagle bearer. The eagle was the supreme symbol of the empire. Of course it's not an accident or a coincidence of insignificance that John knows Jesus is the son of God because a dove descended and remained on him. It's so beautiful and so odd and so cool and so counter-empire. It almost seems like the whole thing might be sort of a mimicry or a mockery of the empire and its birds. But I think it's more than that. I think it says something about God and how God acts in the world, and it may be just vaguely disappointing that it isn't like a fierce eagle sweeping in to rescue and defend us and swoop us away to some shiny heaven. But it isn't like that. I think John the Baptist might have been surprised that God incarnate came without the wrath that John expected. But maybe it was like one of those epiphany moments where it's not anything like you expected or anything like you thought or anything like you thought knew before. But suddenly, you see something. In John's gospel, Jesus doesn't enter the world as a baby. But still, the word become flesh is vulnerable, is small. It's almost like the people who wrote these stories went a little overboard to make their point. A baby, a lamb, a dove. This isn't God like the gods were ever imagined. It's like you're waiting for Zeus or Poseidon or the fire from Mount Sinai and you get a lamb. You couldn't make a more emphatic image of God stripped of glory and power and wrath unless it was Jesus on the cross. It's all very strange, isn't it? I don't think it's something that you can get all at once by studying or memorizing or agreeing to some creed. Jesus' very first words in this gospel are the farthest thing from some sort of divine declaration. Jesus' very first words are a question. When John's disciples follow him, he asks, What do you seek? And they don't really have an answer. They probably don't even know. It doesn't seem like that even really matters to Jesus. They follow him, and he teaches them sort of slowly over time. He teaches them that he's food. What a crazy and beautiful and strange image. God as food. Not a vindictive, exacting God of wrath, all for himself and all for his greatness and power. Like, God doesn't come to be worshipped up on a throne where people will serve him beautiful 
platters of fancy food. God comes to feed people with some food that will satisfy our hunger, even if we don't even know what we're hungry for. And then the first thing that Jesus does is turn water into wine. Really, really, really fine wine that never runs out. And Jesus says over and over and over again in this gospel that God comes to give life to the world. Full life. Lively life. Like an ever-flowing stream, everlasting life. God doesn't come down and start banging heads, doesn't start coercing people to bow down and worship at God's feet. God doesn't come to display the power of God, how anyone ever imagined the power of God. God's purpose doesn't seem to be to rule the world in any way at all, like the empire. But then Jesus doesn't give it to the empire, like some people might have hoped he would. Che Guevara might have had him shot. Jesus betrays the revolution in a certain way. He's a sympathizer with all manners of unrepentant men and women. He forgives his executioners. How could that possibly ever work to transform the world, to feed it? God enters history, comes straight into the Anomi, the middle of empire where the wild beasts roam and all the beautiful and selfish and greedy and kind and messy people live, all the self-righteous and all the unrighteous. And God loves this, loves them. And that seems to be God's ultimate desire. God gives God's self to us. More like food or more like water than anything like a mighty fortress. Something that satisfies and fortifies, unmighty, stripped of glory, almost unseen or unobvious, but somehow behind, under, creative of life. The light that enlightens, but not like neon, flash, flash, flash. And maybe it's possible that tasting that generosity, drinking that wine, might transform us and the world, might free us somehow to be wildly generous and gracious and merciful.